The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. To learn about the new PCGS My Account app, visit PCGS.com. This week on the Coin Week podcast, David Fanning returns to talk about an upcoming important auction of numismatic books belonging to one of the most accomplished coin collectors and researchers of our time, John W. Adams. It's a collection filled with early 20th century and late 19th century numismatic auction catalogs and other items central to our understanding of this important time as the coin hobby developed in the United States. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me. Uh, this is now your second time appearing on the Coin Week podcast. Uh, this time, uh, we're set to discuss what is probably one of the most important sales of numismatic literature that we've had the privilege to uh, take part in over a generation. And that is your forthcoming sale of a key area of the library of numismatist, author, and researcher John W. Adams. Hi, Charles. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is, uh, you know, the most important sale of American, you know, numismatic literature, really, I'd say since uh, the Ford sale in uh, 2006 was the second part of the Ford. Um, and yes, it's uh, coming up just uh, in a little over a week. This is a hobby where sometimes it seems that we don't have much time to reflect. So many coins, even major coins, change hands with such regularity that by the time one 1913 nickel is sold, Another one may be offered up, and perhaps that's the way it should be. I think coins should be enjoyed by as many people as possible. But when it comes to numismatic literature, I think the sale of someone's numismatic library means something altogether different than the sale of a portion or even all of that collector's coin holdings. I think when someone sells their numismatic books, especially when a researcher or writer does this, it's almost as if the valve is being closed off in a fountain of knowledge we've all benefited from for one time or another. And such is the case, I think, with these books coming to market. Right, and libraries can take a considerably longer to assemble uh, than even a, a really nice coin collection. Uh, in the present case, you know, we're looking at a library that's been formed, you know, for over four decades uh, by someone who knew his subject well. It's a very, very focused library. Um, you know, the uh, the material that we have here from John Adams is almost entirely auction catalogs, American auction catalogs, uh, most of them from what we would kind of consider to be the classic uh, pre-World War II era, um, you know, with heavy focus on plated, photographically plated auction catalogs, which we can talk about later. Uh, but you're absolutely right. A lot of ex very rare, very expensive coins change hands surprisingly often. Um, and there are reasons for that that I won't go into, but my point is some of these books we've never handled. Um, and, you know, Colby and Fanning itself has only been around since uh, 2010, but George Colby, uh, you know, the uh, my business partner and the firm, you know, uh, which we continue, has been dealing in numismatic books for 50 years, 51 years, in fact, and uh, we have books 
this catalog that he had never handled. So it really is a remarkable opportunity. Let's get into what is often the untold story of numismatics. There are coins, uh, of course. Uh, there are collectors for them. There are coin dealers who supply them. And then occupying this uh, third area of interaction uh, with these objects are researchers and writers. And John, who of course was a consummate collector and researcher, also had an incredible talent for writing. And one of the subjects that he found fascinating was the structure of the coin industry. He wrote in great detail about dealers and auctions. And it is this area of our shared coin culture that I too have always found fascinating. You know, the story of coin dealers is such a critical part of the tapestry of the hobby. And so few people over the years have been close enough uh, to these people uh, to gain any real expertise or insights into them. And that's me coming from even a contemporary basis. And what John did was to try to drill deep inside the professional career of dealers and collectors from the 19th and early 20th century from a distance. And, and that's a very difficult task. It's important to study these people because, you know, the structure of the hobby as we know it today was essentially put in place by these early figures and John's work in this area, I think, broke new ground. And I think over the years it has proved to be invaluable work. Right, right. I mean, we are, as, as you're saying, uh, we benefit every day, whether we realize it or not, from the efforts of people who have been dead for 100 years who almost none of us have heard of. Um, you know, these are the people who had the foresight to establish institutions like the ANS and the ANA. Uh, you know, these are the people who felt that, you know, specialized, you know, hobby periodicals were, you know, something to develop. Uh, you know, these were people who put a lot of time into the hobby. Now, John Adams has always had a real interest and a soft spot for the people involved in the hobby as well as the coins themselves and the books themselves. Um, you can look back to John was probably first became sort of a household name in the numismatic scene uh, when he sold his 1794 large cents through a Bowers and Ruddy fixed price catalog. Um, and what was really interesting about that collection was that although he was indeed trying to get as many dye varieties as possible in as nice a grade as possible, what his real goal was was to collect coins with interesting provenances back to major collectors and dealers and researchers, often going back to the 19th century. So, you know, if he had a choice between two really nice examples of a particular Sheldon variety, and one of them happened to have been, you know, in the personal collection of Ed Frassard, for instance, 19th century coin dealer who wrote on large sense, you know, then that coin would be the coin that he would be interested in. Um, so the stories of the people have always been important to John. You know, I've always felt that coins are a totem, that uh, coin collectors and numismatists use to find fellowship with people who have a similar interest. Coins are, of course, interesting physical objects but their allure is much more broad and far-reaching. 
And while it's certainly fun to find a rare Sheldon variety, that experience is elevated when you find someone to share your enthusiasm for these things with. And, and yeah, we, we, all, we do bond over that. And the social aspect of uh, collecting is very important to an awful lot of us. Um, so, yeah, the, and that is, those bonds can not only be bonds that we form with, you know, people who we actually know. Like, I can go to a coin show and I will see you there. Um, and we can chat for a bit and catch up. But, you know, someone like a Lyman Lowe or, you know, a classic American cataloger, well, you know, he died in, when did he die? In the 1920s. Um, and, you know, obviously, I don't know him. I never knew him. I never had the chance to interact with him. And yet, an awful lot of his ideas, opinions, ways of thinking are preserved on paper. Um, and I can develop a genuine fondness for this man who I've never met. Um, you know, he's been dead for almost a century. Um, and yet that bond can feel real because, you know, I feel like if I went out to lunch with Lyman Lowe somehow, we would get along very well. We have all sorts of things in common, all sorts of interests. We'd have lots to talk about. And that's a neat feeling. It's funny. As we're talking about this, I'm looking at my own numismatic library. You know, I have my bookshelf here in my office. Uh, two things stand out. Um, I have a copy of Numisma. I mean, it's a reprint, you know, but um, that's Ed Frassard's House Canon. Uh, and also bound copies of volumes of the Numismatist. Uh, and it's especially uh, my favorite is a period I consider the golden age of writing in that magazine. And that's the mid-70s to the mid-1980s. You know, maybe not what you think is the golden age chronologically. But this is the period that far and away had the best writing. And I find that for me for when for what my aesthetic is as the editor of Coin Week that I borrowed heavily from what I learned from these publications and the people responsible for them. From Frassard, you know, who is certainly a firebrand. And he was. <laughs> yeah, from Frassard, I learned by reading his writing that it's okay to have a little bit of that Molotov cocktail on you uh, when discussing the hobby that you're so passionate about. So long as you clearly see what's going on. I mean, he didn't always. And from the deeply researched work in this period of the numismatist, particularly the writings of Gantz and Bowers, I learned that there's nothing better than thoughtful writing to promote coin collecting, no matter if you're talking about a great rarity or something as simple as the bicentennial coin program, as Gantz so expertly did. And you know, it's reading these works and getting into the mind, if you will, these people, it gave me the insight that I wanted to make uh, and publish articles like these on Coin Week. Uh, so I set out to do that, and I ask others to join me in that endeavor. So uh, in a lot of respects, if you enjoy Coin Week or this podcast or the perspective that I bring to my work, what you're seeing is a continuation of this long and rich history of numismatic writing and research that began long before me. So uh, we owe quite a debt to these people. They, de they kind of defined what the hobby was. Um, you know, they figured out, okay, well, what are, you know, what are the areas that, you know, are really, you know, particularly special? Um, you know, a lot of these people are responsible for developing our tastes even today. 
um, you know, and, you know, sort of vindicating, you know, the uh, establishing popularity. You know, why are so many more people interested in, you know, early large cents than early dimes? You know, something like that. Um, you know, it's uh, why, you know, besides the cost has, you know, uh, gold been, you know, always been, you know, a small area of collecting, as, you know, compared to some other areas. These were people who did the original research. They And they did it in a time where it was much more difficult to conduct. Uh, it was much more difficult to separate uh, fact from fiction. And they really, they did a remarkably good job. It's, uh, you know, uh, easy to sort of look at some of the myths that have developed over the years and trace them back and say, oh, well, these guys, you know, they were just, uh, you know, kind of winging it, making stuff up and, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, legends and fictions have, you know, crept their way into their work. And that's true on some level, but I think it's much more profitable if we admire these people for the amazing amount of things that they got right. Um, you know, they, uh, generally speaking, were coming up with really good information, some really neat ideas, and they were doing it at a time when it was much harder to do. Um, we are really spoiled rotten in comparison. You know, it's so much easier to conduct uh, research nowadays than it was back then. And, uh, you know, we really have to uh, admire uh, these people for the work they did at that time. I think one of the great legacies that Adams has is his two-volume work on numismatic literature. He gives a great introduction to the personalities behind the coin industry in the 19th and 20th centuries and did, I think, better than anyone before without the benefit of Internet research tools. A symbol, a fairly comprehensive overview of American numismatic auctions from the latter half of the 19th century through the first half of the 20th. How would you say this section of his numismatic library, the one that you're going to be selling later in the week, played a role in his ability to detail and describe this important period of the American coin hobby? I imagine that his work on the subject would not have been possible had he not assembled this collection of rare and antiquarian numismatic books. The material that we're, ne we're now selling is, are mostly his classic American auction catalogs, uh, including a lot of rare uh, plated catalogs. So what you're really looking at here are the genesis of what, you know, we tend to call Adams Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, these are his books, uh, United States Numismatic Literature. Uh, volume 1 deals with uh, the classic auction catalogs from dealers who got their start in the 19th century. Uh, the second volume deals with those who got their start in the first half of the 20th century. Um, when John started putting together materials for those books, it is, it's kind of hard to believe now, um, but we really didn't entirely know what was out there. I mean, we still discover things today from time to time, but back then, we really were groping about in the dark. We really did not know. What was a set of Lyman Lowe catalogs? What constituted that? Uh, how many B-Max Mel sales were there exactly? 
Uh, were they all of these numbers issued? Did they fib a little bit in their numbering to make it seem like they were more experienced? Um, you know, we I got involved in the hobby in the 1980s, which was a fantastic time uh, to enter this uh, area of the hobby, uh, because it was a period of discovery. Uh, Adams Volume 1 on the 19th century catalogs was already out, uh, but Adams Volume 2 didn't come out until 1990. Um, so we were still trying to figure things out. Uh, Caton catalogs, what, how many were there? You know, how, what about these Kagan catalogs? The numbering system seems funny. Uh, a lot of really basic questions were still being asked and answers were still being sought, uh, which made it kind of fun. Um, you know, anyone could discover new things, and new things were being discovered all the time. It was exciting in that way. So what you see in the catalogs that we have uh, coming up in our July 14th auction are these are the catalogs that John collected over the years as he researched the history of these catalogers, the history of the hobby, and, you know, the focus for him was on the printed word. That's how he, you know, focused on tracing the history of the hobby. And John was collecting this material at a time when very few people cared. Uh, as such, he had some tremendous opportunities uh, in the mid-'70s, for instance. Uh, the library of the uh, famous uh, father-son uh, duo of uh, uh, George Fold uh, and his uh, and his father, um, they sold their library in two Frank Caton sales in, I mean, that was actually the early 70s, around 71. And, you know, John was buying then, and very few people were. Um, some of the items that we are offering uh, in this sale, you know, he purchased in these 1971 sales, and they've never been offered since. I mean, no other copy has been offered since. Um, they're that rare. And, I mean, try to imagine how many American coins there are where an example hasn't been offered since 1971. Um, you know, you're going to have a pretty short list. Um, and the prices would be fantastic, um, you know, where the prices for, you know, the books and catalogs and such are of course much more modest uh, but it's still the uh, it's the same kind of excitement it's important to realize that for in order for these catalogs to survive all these years it's because prominent collectors kept them and in some respects that speaks to the quality of what was available at the time I mean there was no red book back then and most of the publishing was small print runs and amateurish many of these books were treated as references that's exactly it. And when I say that we're spoiled for, you know, in, information at our fingertips, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, modern life where we have, we don't even just have a red book. We have red books. Um, you know, we have the entire Internet, uh, you know, available for our almost immediate, you know, use as a reference. So let's say it's the year 1901 and you're a collector well, what do you have? I mean, you do have some halfway decent books at that point, 
but you don't have as many of the sort of handy references. You have dealer price lists, and you almost certainly have a collection of auction catalogs. Um, ideally, ones where the prices realized have been noted. And, you know, a lot of times they'd be handwritten in the catalog. Um, you know, price, printed prices realized lists were sometimes issued, but they, they weren't entirely standard. Uh, you were still getting a lot of hand-priced catalogs. And, yeah, so when you had someone like, you know, you have like a W. Eliot Woodward, uh, say, in the 1880s, puts out a catalog. You know, he was a big dealer. He had a widespread clientele. I don't know how many copies he would have printed of his sales, but let's say it was a lot. Let's say it was as many as, you know, maybe 500. Um, distributes those all over. These are fairly cheaply printed for the most part, and they are designed primarily to get people to bid, send in bids, you know, get participation. Afterwards, you know, the vast majority of people are going to toss these catalogs they're not necessarily going to keep them. Uh, you know, if they bought something in the, from the catalog, then they might. Or if they were particularly serious, you know, collectors, they might. But what, you know, some people like Woodward did was he also printed special copies of his catalogs. In his case, he did them on thicker paper. That was, you know, just going, it was going to last longer uh, and, you know, hold up over time better. These would often be hand-priced after the sale. Now, those are a reference. Those people are going to keep. Um, and occasionally, if the value of the sale was going to be high enough to justify it, they would be illustrated with photographic prints. Um, and these, these prints or plates are highly desirable today because they're often the only real way that we can tell for certain that a particular coin traces its provenance back to that sale. Um, now, the Adams Library that we're selling on July 14th is particularly notable in the preponderance of plated sales. Um, these were often produced in very small numbers. It's not unusual to see that, okay, well, Ed Frassard produced 25 plated copies of this particular sale. Well, you think about that for a bit. You know, these catalogs are much less durable than coins. You get something, you know, like 25 catalogs issued in 1887. How many of those are going to be around today? You know, these were issued in paper covers. They're not hardbound. You know, when the collector dies, they're survivors are probably going to assume that they're not worth anything uh, and get rid of them. If half of them survived over the years, that's quite a lot. Um, probably often more like a fifth of them have survived. So these things are rare. And given the increasing importance of providing good provenances for important coins, they're really important and very quite useful. They're not just, you know, sentimental or interesting in sort of a fun historical curiosity way that, oh, look what, you know, this coin only brought $6 back then kind of thing. You know, they can really uh, serve a very useful uh, and practical research purpose nowadays. Something people may not realize, uh, given what you just said, is that if there's going to be a limited edition special run of these catalogs produced with meticulous care with the expensive to produce plates and whatnot, 
then they're then these were being made for special collectors. So maybe a collector like Charles Steigerwald has a special catalog made for him. Well, well now you have not only this rare catalog with plates, of which there are only a handful known, not only are you getting an auction catalog of an important early uh, collection, from which many of these coins have gone on to be some of the superstars of the collecting hobby, uh, but you're also now connected to the collecting process of an important collector of the period. So in this way, these specific books are part of a thread that connects us to collectors from the past as well. That's a, that's a good point, too. Um, you're not um, it's a very good point. You're not. You're often not only linking yourself sort of uh, to the cataloger, but you're you know linking to the original collector whose copy it was. Uh, to take one of the more fantastic items in the Adams sale, we have you know a copy of the Chapman Brothers catalog of the Bushnell sale. You know, really famous you know catalog. Uh, this has. <clears throat> Excuse me. This has the photographic plates. Um, it's highly useful, highly desirable, very well-known catalog. Um, so you know, one can bid on an item like this, knowing that here they are. They're getting you know one of the classic catalogs of the period. You know, by you know Samuel Hudson and Henry Chapman, uh, two just towering figures in the hobby of the 19th century and early 20th century. And you know you have all these wonderful things about this catalog that uh, make it you know very desirable on its own, but then you have the additional fact that this copy was David Prosky's. Now David Prosky is a name that may be unfamiliar to uh, a lot of collectors today. He didn't write as much or publish as much under his own name, but he worked in very important capacities. It was probably one of, you know, the top half dozen numismatists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The man was brilliant. Um, he wrote catalogs for Scott & Company. Uh, he wrote catalogs for New York Coin & Stamp Company. He may have had a working relationship at times with Lyman Lowe. Uh, and he was the editor for quite some time of the Coin Collector's Journal, published by Scott and Company. Um, so he, his paper trail is actually fairly extensive, but most of it doesn't have his name on it. Or if it does, it's you know just as the editor. Uh, I suspect he actually wrote a lot of the content in the Coin Collector's Journal, for instance. Uh, you know, but so here we have in the Adams Library, we have. This copy of the Bushnell sale, this hugely important sale, by these hugely important dealers, S.H. and H. Chapman, and it belonged to David Prosky, and it has his handwritten annotations all throughout it. Uh, sometimes he's quibbling with, you know, the grade assigned to certain pieces. Sometimes he's saying that a piece is out and out, you know, improperly uh, cataloged or maybe even fake. Um, you know, it's really, really interesting stuff. Uh, but that's just, you know, one example of, you know, here we have, uh, you know, sort of three, if not four personalities coming together in one book because it's the Bushnell Collection, that's important. It's by the Chapman Brothers, that's important. And it's David Prosky's copy, that's important. Um, so it's just a, a really neat example of how this sort of thing can work. And to make this piece even more psychedelic than it is, uh, 
The Bushnell Collection uh, was obviously hugely important uh, for collectors of Washingtoniana. Uh, the Bushnell Collection had many important pieces, some unique pieces. It also has uh, had a great variety of colonial coins, uh, so there's that angle. Uh, the Chapman Brothers, uh, not above criticism from their peers, there was a lot of competition at this time, uh, but they were nonetheless very important and colorful figures in the scene. Uh, and of course, as you said, Prosky, uh, a major figure and researcher. And in this one piece, it all comes together. He absolutely was. That's right. What do you think, uh, beyond the idea of ownership, uh, which is important when you're buying and collecting things, uh, beyond the spiritual core of what our hobby is all about, I feel that there's still got to be quite a bit of information uh, to be mined from these resources and presented to the hobby you know, in new ways, which can be illuminating. Uh, I, I think sometimes we put undue importance on accumulating information. Uh, you know, there are now online resources where many of our major things are available. You can look up anything uh, uh, from a catalog to, to uh, a newspaper article or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I say this all the time, a book you don't read that sits on your bookshelf doesn't really provide you a lot of value. So it's processing the information, checking it against what knowledge has come after, and then presenting that information anew and in interesting ways. That's how you get value, and that's how you move the ball forward. Uh, with that being said, you know, how much magic do you think is left in these books for that next generation of researcher or writer? Well, I mean, one of the things that is interesting is seeing how things change when they're part of a library or a collection. So you have, you know, you have, you know, three books, let's say. And, yeah, individually, you know, they're self-contained works. They're probably online or well-known. Um, the information is, as you say, available. You put them all next to each other on the shelf, and it's almost as though they kind of start talking. And you do this with a full library, and you start to see connections between things that you hadn't noticed before. Um, it is hard for us to always keep, you know, chronologies straight or to remember that, okay, well, these two 19th century collectors lived in the same city around the same time. And, you know, we tend to forget that sort of thing. So they probably knew each other. Well, how do they relate to each other? Are there any catalogs where, you know, one of these collectors is, you know, making notations in reference to the other? Um, how did they go about, you know, you mentioned Washingtonia, for instance, which was a very, very popular area in the 19th century. Um, you know, you had a lot of people quibbling about what was out there and more so uh, about what was real or of real historical value. Um, the 19th century was a time where collectors frequently not only collected coins, but they also made pieces. Um, they often made tokens. Having your personal store card, whether you were a dealer or not, was you know a popular thing. So, you know, if you went to a, sh you know, the equivalent of you know today's show, Charles, you might have you know a handful of Charles Morgan tokens to give to your buddies or anyone who you 
uh, like to see. You might have some of them struck in odd metals to make, you know, sort of instant rarities and that sort of thing. That kind of thing was popular, but you might also have, you know, made a couple Washington medals because you liked Washington. And, you know, so a lot of the hobby at this time was trying to figure out, well, okay, we're trying to define the very idea of Washingtonia. What counts? Do these modern things count? Uh, these concoctions by collectors? Um, a lot of what we know about these things exists in annotations, a surprising amount. Um, you know, J.N.T. Levick, to mention a really prominent 19th century uh, dealer and collector who was very active in the token field at the time. Uh, he had a great library. He annotated the heck out of his catalogs. And a lot of these catalogs exist today, and sometimes, you know, they include information just written in the margins that you're not going to find anywhere else. Um, so there are more catalogs out there and books and periodicals to a somewhat lesser extent that are in one way or another unique. Um, you know, they can't just be looked up online. Um, they have something going for them, some bits of information uh, that make them special and uh, that you know, often that information has been essentially forgotten and is still waiting to be rediscovered, you know, maybe 130 years later. So this forthcoming sale of the Adams Library uh, pertains mostly to catalogs and related materials. Is this a, a large portion of what currently constitutes the Adams Numismatic Library, or does he plan to sell further tranches of his library at a future date? John has, over the years, assembled and sold collections in several different areas. Um, what we have here comprises the, the real core holdings for his classic American auction catalogs. Now, the past couple decades, John has mostly been uh, interested in metals, and not just American metals, but you know, a number of foreign ones, often ones that have some relevance to the Americas, uh, so things that we would call Betts metals today. Um, you know, that library, of course, you know, is intact. He has, you know, maintains a working library. Um, but as far as his uh, holdings of, you know, classic American American auction catalogs, uh, most of them are uh, present in the current sale. So tell me something that you, uh, you didn't know, that you found out after taking in this consignment and looking through the materials. Well, that's a good question. There are a number of items in here that I personally have never handled, uh, a lot of rare sale catalogs. But thinking more broadly, let me think here. Um, there's a lot left to to, to learn. Um, for instance, this uh, our uh, July 14th sale includes an absolutely complete collection of Chapman catalogs. It's the first time there's ever been uh, a complete collection offered at auction. Um, you know, some of the great collectors of the past were. And they may have only been missing a few, but they were missing a few, and this uh, this sale has them all. And there are things that only really started to come to my attention because 
we had everything or pretty much everything in front of us. Um, the rarity of certain Chapman sales, you know, there seemed to be chronologically, there seemed to be periods where even their unplated uh, catalogs were considerably more scarce than most other periods. Uh, that indicates something. You know, it's an area that should probably be explored more. Why uh, was business, was the economy bad at that time? Uh, did there, was there something personal going on that meant that their you know, business was suffering a little bit? Um, and uh, also just the way that people distributed things. For instance, uh, Tom Elder's sale. Um, the selection of plated Tom Elder catalogs uh, in this sale is extraordinary. Uh, and that allowed me to get a much better handle on you know, how he used his plated catalogs. They generally, with a few exceptions, become much more rare as time goes on, which is the opposite of what you might assume. Uh, you know, the early plated catalogs, one would guess, you know, photographs were more expensive to produce. He'd probably do, you know, fewer copies with plates, distribute them to a smaller clientele. Uh, and as time went on, what I found was he distributed fewer and fewer copies. The plated catalogs become more and more rare. There are one or two exceptions, but generally speaking, that you know tends to be the case, uh, which is a shame because as time goes on, his plates become wonderful. Uh, some of them are full-tone uh, photographs. They're actual, you know, photographs. They're not photographically printed. They're you know the actual photograph itself, uh, and they're just beautiful. Uh, very interesting. Were there any marginal notes or comments written in these early catalogs by early collectors that you found interesting or surprising? Yes, actually one of the more puzzling items that I found in uh, the John Adams Library uh, is something that is not monetarily not really worth an enormous amount. It's simply a circular uh, that was written and distributed uh, by David Prosky and let's see here. This would uh, uh, this would be under uh, New York Coin and Stamp. And let's see here. Okay, so this is a printed circular, uh, almost certainly from 1887, though it's undated. Uh, and this is basically announcing the formation of the New York Coin and Stamp Company. Uh, and this was uh, David Prosky, who would have been the guiding force there. Um, and what was really interesting about this circular was when I read it, I realized that he was claiming that he had done a lot of cataloging for Lyman Lowe. Now, that came as a complete surprise. Um, as far as I know, Lyman Lowe wrote his own catalogs. There's no reason to think he didn't. Um, and, you know, he went on after the period of the circular, to write almost 200 additional catalogs. So he, he certainly, you know, knew what he was doing. He certainly was writing a lot. Um, but here we have Prosky suggesting pretty strongly that he wrote some of uh, Lowe's early catalogs. I am not certain if this is true. Um, if it is true, it is really kind of puzzling. Um, and if it's not true, it's even more puzzling. <laughs> um, 
you know, so it's just, it, it, it's a mystery. It's a neat little thing that's, you know, waiting to be figured out. But it really brought home to me personally that <clears throat> all these years later, we still don't know a lot of basic things about the history of our own hobby, um, which seems surprising. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of neat uh, thinking that there are still mysteries out there. There's still things to explore, questions to be answered, uh, questions even to be asked. Um, you know, I personally find that motivating and energizing. Uh, and uh, I just uh, thought that was a particularly neat example of something that uh, raised a lot more questions than it answered. Well, David, uh, best of luck on the sale, and I wish John the best of luck. I'm sure that he's already profited immensely from owning this library. It has definitely benefited his work greatly, and uh, we are fortunate that John W. Adams took such a deep and lasting interest in sorting out the early history of the hobby in America. All right, David, uh, good luck. Uh, and for our, our listeners, you know, I invite anybody listening to the Coin Podcast to take a look. Uh, time is running out to bid on this sale. Uh, many of these rare and antiquarian books are rarer than the coins they describe and can be had at a fraction of the cost. But if you uh, turn turns out that you're listening to this after July 14, 2018, it's okay. Do yourself a favor, though, and visit numislit.com and take a look at the important antiquarian, vintage, and even modern books and reprints that are available to you at Colby and Fanny's online bookstore. It is a vital resource for me and for the hobby, and I always enjoy reading their catalogs, which includes some of the most insightful writing that you'll find anywhere in the hobby about the inner workings of the coin industry and the books that fill it up. I always learn so much, and I enjoy the sprinkle of humor that they often put into their catalogs. Uh, George and Colby and David Fanning uh, really get the material uh, and have a deep appreciation for the writers and the collectors, which means they like and appreciate you. Um, so definitely consider doing business with Colby and Fanning. I would highly recommend it. All right, David, good luck and take care. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for uh, giving me a call. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Charles. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download all 100-plus episodes of the Coin Week Podcast for free on the iTunes Store. Tune back in next week where we have an incredible podcast with former Coin World editor Beth Deicher, where we talk about the counterfeit coins and her battle to stop them. I'm Coin Week editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.